We all mean well in our communication, but sometimes we create anxiety that we don't intend. In this episode, how to prevent sending the wrong message, especially in the digital world. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 528. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the key competencies for leaders is being effective in our communications. I know so many of us intend well in how we communicate, and yet sometimes we provoke anxiety in our communications without intending to do so. Today, I'm so glad to have an expert with us that is going to help us to communicate even more effectively so we really get the message across that we want to get across. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Erica Dewan. She is a globally recognized leadership expert and keynote speaker, helping organizations and leaders innovate faster and further together. Named as one of the top management professionals around the world by global gurus, she is the founder and CEO of Cotential, a company that helps leaders and teams leverage 21st century collaboration skills. Her writing has appeared in dozens of publications, including Fast Company and the Harvard Business Review. She is the co-author of Get Big Things Done and the author of the new book, Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Erica, so glad to meet you. It's so great to be here, Dave. Well, thanks for taking the time to join me and for really doing your work around the importance of digital body language. Gosh, it's become so important in our world today. And as I was researching your work in preparation for our conversation, I found that you and I share something in common. You write in the book about your childhood and going to school that raising my hand or calling any attention to myself was unimaginable to me. I did well. <laughs> I did well <laughs> That's in right. Yeah. I did well in school and on tests, but the comments in every report card I received from kindergarten to twelfth grade was the same thing. I wish Erica spoke up more. And I was thinking about that. And unlike me, you are an immigrant and you talk about being an immigrant and how that precipitated some of that shyness. Could you t- tell me a bit about that? Absolutely. You know, I grew up in an Indian immigrant family. My parents moved from India to a suburban part of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the 1970s. And that meant, you know, at home, my parents spoke Hindi and Punjabi. And so when I started going to school, I had accented and broken English. I'll never forget uh, being in school, reading George Orwell's Animal Farm. And each of us as students had to read a section of a chapter. And I was reading one of the chapters. And one of the words that came up was the word peculiar. But for me, with my accented English, often hearing how phrases are said from my parents, I would say, I said in the class, peck you liar. Uh... Now, my fellow colleagues in that classroom never let me forget that. They teased me again and again. And in many ways, I really struggled to find my voice. I was shy, more of an observer than a participant. I remember that because I was so shy, it also caused me to observe a lot of people more carefully. I I remember watching the popular girls with their heads high and their shoulders back, 
the cool kids slouching during school assemblies and, and often studied and realized that it's not just about what people say, but how they say it. And then at home, because I didn't speak Hindi so well, and my parents would watch Bollywood movies all the time, I would always study the actors and actresses' faces to really know what they meant because I didn't always know what they were saying in Hindi. And so in many ways, my shyness precipitated my passion for body language and communication. And just like I was an immigrant to body language as a kid today, what I realized is we're all immigrants to the new world of digital body language. Yeah, indeed. You know, it's really interesting how sometimes our struggles early on in our lives and our careers do precipitate strengths later on. And I, I really appreciate the connection you make in the book about we're all immigrants in this world now because this is such a new medium for so many of us, isn't it? It is a new medium. I mean, research shows that Roughly 75% of collaboration is our nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone, the ability to really build trust with that handshake, with the eye contact, with the lean in in a sales conversation. How do we really build that connection in a virtual world? Well, I've realized that body language hasn't necessarily disappeared. It's just transformed. We now infuse digital body language signals, be it our punctuation, emojis, response times, how we greet and end emails, even our virtual video calls and how we engage others. And what I realized is in many ways, just like what was implicit in traditional body language just now needs to be explicit in digital body language. You've done a really beautiful job in the book of making what I think a lot of us have experienced in our communications every day, and especially thinking about text and email, of really surfacing some of the things that as I read, I was like, oh yeah, I've, I'm guilty of doing this. And, and in particular, you've highlighted some key areas that really, for us, especially from a leadership standpoint, we can often provoke anxiety in others in our communications without even meaning to. And I thought it'd be useful for folks to dive into some of those areas and, and really examine them, because um, I think if we can raise our awareness on this and perhaps do a little bit better, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to help all of us to communicate more effectively. The, the first one is one that actually a lot of us have been taught as leaders we need to get better at, which is brevity and being concise, right? And yeah. uh, and yet, that also, like any skill taken too far, it can actually work against us. And I was wondering if you could share a bit about how that shows up as an obstacle when thinking about really communicating effectively and genuinely. I spent a lot of time studying the most common types of anxiety-provoking digital body language. And really, Dave, as you said, at the top of the list was brevity. We've all gotten those messages, whether it is, you know, we need to talk, dot, dot, dot. Was this a simple meeting request or is it as ominous as it sounds? Or someone sending a message in all caps saying, can you send me that today? It feels like shouting, not exactly excitement, especially in a text message and especially from your boss. What I found in the research is that brevity can create a lot of confusion. The pressure to communicate quickly, especially in emails, texts, even chat rooms, can oftentimes cause us to make mistakes to create more misunderstanding than we intend to. I'll give you an example. Please. One of my clients sent a text to his boss that said, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And his boss responded, yes. Now, <laughs> if this is someone you knew well, you could just respond and say, you didn't respond to me, tell me. But 
it can be very anxiety provoking for a new employee to have to follow up or chase down a leader multiple times. And I found that some of the sloppiest individuals when it comes to brevity are not just young people in the workplace. They are some of our most senior leaders that have been very reliant on an assistant next to them meeting in person most of the time. Another example uh, is from a chief marketing officer who told me that a few months ago she was on a Zoom call and she was reviewing a deck that her team was working on for her. And she said something of the like of, let's iterate on this topic a bit more. What she really meant was, let's add two more bullets to the slide on this topic. The team comes back a week later with 10 additional slides, probably spent about 40 hours of work on this. She was just looking for two bullet points. Imagine how demotivated they felt Uh, Because really, she chose brevity instead of clarity. And this is not just a trivial productivity issue. It is an issue that impacts performance, well-being, satisfaction, and can even cause lost profits. Yeah, it it really strikes me as oftentimes an overcorrection, especially at the executive level of I've, I've been trained and told that I need to be so concise and so brief in my communications and so big picture that I don't take the time to add in, in some cases, just a couple other words or maybe a sentence or two. And I, I love what you wrote, and I'm, I'm quoting you from the book here. Uh, there was a running joke in one organization that the more senior you were, the fewer characters you needed to express your gratitude in a text or email. You started your career with, thank you so much. After a promotion or two, this was cut down to thanks. Another promotion produced THX. And you say one senior leader just wrote T as a response. (laughs) That's right. It's a true story. (laughs) It's really interesting. And I I think some people may hear that and think like, okay, I've got to, you know, I've got all of a sudden I have to like start really writing a paragraph or send a video. And and one of the things I, I really like that you say in the book is like, you don't have to go crazy with this. You don't have to like write a novel in response, but a little bit goes a long way. When you're coaching people on doing this a little bit better, especially from the leadership lens, what do you invite them to do just to just to add a little bit more that is helpful? I have a few things that leaders can do to avoid sending confusing messages. So the first one is to first just think before you type and ask yourself a few questions. You know, one is, Am I clear on the who, what, when of who needs he who needs to do what by when? Just those three W's. The second is once you've written the message, asking yourself, is it clear? Is there another way that the recipient might interpret this? If it's potentially confusing or if it's a complex discussion, is this the right channel? I like to say picking up the phone is worth a thousand emails. So knowing when there are high complex conversations that shouldn't ha- happen by email. And lastly, if you do have more power, making sure you're taking that extra step to show gratitude, whether it's a quick thank you so much or great job on this presentation. Even those simple phrases showcase a sense of empathy and respect, even when we can't do it with our traditional body language. A little bit of that goes a long way, doesn't it? Just taking a few extra words, uh, a few extra seconds. Absolutely. Even, Even the fact, one thing I recommend is remember that emails are visual People read them like websites. They don't read them as long prose. So you can't write them as if you're talking. Write them as if someone is visually reading it. Use bold, underlined headings, even font style. Make sure your subject line is clear. It's not an, another no subject line for a meeting invitation where, where people are just leaving it up for interpretation about what the meeting is about. And 
again, just simple acts of clarity. You can still be brief, but being clear at the same time is amazing for all. And I'm thinking about what you just said too, and almost it's almost like making the shift of, I'm only thinking about my time and thinking about how do I actually help the time of the entire team be efficient? And I'm thinking about the example you gave a few minutes ago about let's iterate, right? And all of a sudden it generates 40 hours of work for a team when that wasn't intended. So by me as in the leadership role, if I can take a few extra seconds, yeah, it's going to take me maybe another minute or two to compose the message, but I'm saving my team of going down this path of spending hours of work on something where ultimately doesn't serve me well as a leader. And if the organization's going on something that's not useful for people. Yeah. You know, I think that there are so many things we can do to be more thoughtful in many ways. Valuing others visibly is simply valuing their time, their inboxes and schedules. One best practice that I recommend is even thinking about the power of response time expectations. With one company, we created acronyms in subject lines. For example, 2H meant I need this in two hours. 4D meant I need this in four days. NNTR meant no need to respond. And my favorite, ROM meant respond on Monday, especially if you're sending something on a Sunday. These simple cues just created a sense of not only priorities because people read their subject lines in their inbox. So they're not prioritizing low priority things. They know what response time expectations are. Secondly, the NNTR, the respond on Monday, allowed people to prioritize when and what they really needed instead of 15 thank you emails that are just wasting our time. And last but not least, setting some norms around when to switch the channel. When do we need to get to a phone call? A general rule of thumb, if there's six back and forth reply all chains, pick up the phone, Uh, you know, or if it's very high complex, maybe you're reviewing slides, set up a 15 minute video call, fight the notion of the 30 or 60 minute, and you'll find that you'll get all the answers much more quickly. And so simple things like this, you know, when we use digital body language thoughtfully and consciously, we can even actually be more inclusive and better than we were in the office. I love that invitation to be explicit about when you need a response, um, because I think very few organizations, I, I rarely see that where that has been explicitly discussed. And I mean, one of the, the things that you warn us against in the book is slow response time, that that's often provoking anxiety in folks. And I, I, let me just say, Erica, I, this is a struggle for me. I tend to not be a person who acts with a lot of urgency. That's just not my personality. And so I will often let things sit, not because I'm trying to ignore them or not respond to people, but I just don't tend to respond quickly to communications. And so I've had to train myself to actually get better at that. But one of the things I've realized over the years is Sometimes I might unintentionally send a message I don't intend to send just because I haven't responded to an email in a day or two, and someone else has been waiting on that response, and they then interpret something because I haven't responded. And it's interesting to challenge ourselves to kind of get out of that mindset a bit and having an explicit conversation about that. In many of my discussions about digital body language, there have just been so many cases where I heard just this level of anxiety ruminating about what might have happened in the last meeting because we haven't heard back from someone or starting to wonder what's going on. And then finally, at some point, we just assume maybe someone forgot and we follow up. And my general rule of thumb here is, you know, Dave, if you you need some time, and I'm a big fan of not rushing, not being hasty, because then you make mistakes 
But if you can't respond to something quickly, you need more time to think about it. Depending on if you know that person, especially if you know their digital body language style, if they like things quickly or they may be nervous or concerned if if they don't hear back from you, sending a simple email like, got it, I'll respond next Monday or something like that can go a long way to first get it out of your system to delegate it and know that you have more time, but also to help the recipient know that you're on it. Another thing that you can do is is really focus on prioritizing when you need to switch the channel. I think this happens a lot where, you know, someone will say, yes, I've experienced this. Someone, I say yes to doing something for someone. And then I get three more requests for them to, for three more other things in a follow-up email. And I have to sometimes say, no, I can't do that. Or it feels difficult uh, for, to do all the multiple follow-ups. And so I have some grace with myself around what I follow up and say no to, especially if there's a high trust dynamic, but if it's just a cold email, you know, I choose to set my own boundaries and also not respond. And I think, you know, good digital body language is also knowing your boundaries on both sides, knowing when a quick response does really matter and when, when not responding is actually perfectly right. One quick tip there, I think that is, that you is useful when it comes to quick responses is, is When you're trying to build a good first impression, a repertoire with someone, maybe you've just had a video call with them. I always like to say that a quick email recap within 30 minutes of the meeting is like the new virtual handshake. And in that case, speed does matter just as much as substance. But in other cases, I'm a big fan of giving yourself grace, giving yourself time to think and and knowing when a quick, I'll get back to you soon, email is just enough. two things I'm hearing there. One is have a system for yourself, like a rule, like, okay, if if it's a first meeting, I'm going to respond to someone in 30 minutes. If it's, you know, here's the kinds of emails I'm going to respond to. Here's the kinds of things I might set aside, but also then be explicit with others too. Like, here's how I work, especially if I'm leading the team. Like, here's when you can expect a response. If you haven't gotten a response, here's when you can reach out to me. Just making that explicit and saying that out loud. Because I think a lot of times we have that in our heads, but we don't, we haven't necessarily really said that to anyone and no one really knows. And then people end up making assumptions and doing the things that, you know, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I think it's very easy for us to start to make up things in our mind when we can't read those cues of body language that made up, you know, 75% of communication. And so what I recommend is to not get emotionally hijacked, stay in the place of reason, you know, especially if you feel anger or frustration from something, don't respond with anger back and maybe sleep on it and, and come, come in a more calm state. And if we really take the time to be careful and conscious about this, we'll see much better results. Well, speaking of emotion and frustration, one of the other areas you warn us about is passive aggressiveness. And this this does show up a lot in communications and on emails in organizations. What does passive aggressiveness look like? And what should be, we be watching for from thinking about our own communications and how we are reaching out to others? We've all received messages where sometimes we didn't know if maybe someone was just being ambiguous. Maybe it was a phrase they use in business school or mirrored from their boss, or they're just actually being passive aggressive to us, or we assume one or the other, and maybe we're wrong. You know, if you've ever received a message such as per my previous email, or I'll take it from here, dot, 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 or as I discussed and iterated already in our previous conversation, <laughs> comma, comma, <laughs> I, you know, these are examples where we may not always feel that sense of good intent and be concerned that someone is passive aggressive, even 
to be honest, in my client work, I remember being so tense around the phrase, thanks for your patience, especially when oh, I, yeah. you know, clients would send it to me. I didn't know if thanks for your patience meant stop bothering me, stop following up. Thanks for your patience just meant thanks for your patience with gratitude. And it can be very alarming and frustrating. And so my general rule of thumb is number one, sometimes it's just ambiguous. Sometimes people are actually being passive aggressive. You may know, or you may never know. And so number one, don't respond to passive aggressive messages when you're angry or frustrated back. It will cause more problems. Save an email message, draft it, but send it when you're in a better mood. You'll find you'll change it. Second, stay in that place of reason and ask yourself, step into other shoes. Why might they be sending this? Are they actually just rushing or in an urgent state or maybe multitasking, which is what caused them to send this confusing, somewhat seemingly passive aggressive message? And last but not least, this is your opportunity to change their behavior and be impeccable in your word. Show empathy and encouragement. So if someone sends a message saying, do this right now, you could respond with, I'm working on this, you know, as discussed, I'll get it back to you at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Is there anything else you need? Like just respond with clarity. And it can sometimes diffuse a situation because sometimes that passive aggressiveness is because of a completely different situation. Someone just lost a deal or a child is crying behind them. It may have nothing to do with you. And one of the other lenses you invite us to look at is thinking about formality. How do you think about formality in the context of communication? One of the things that I noticed when I studied teams and where anxiety was being provoked was a a common trait that kept coming up, which was basically this notion of when there's a switch in formality in someone's digital body language, it can often cause a high levels of anxiety. For example, uh, you know, Dave, if you and I communicated by email in with brief one-liners, informal language, and then all of a sudden you started sending me messages that started with dear Erica and ended with, you know, sincerely, Dave, I would start getting nervous. I would wonder what's going on and why there was such a switch. Or, you know, if, you know, you normally book events with me to to talk to me, you just call me out of the blue or work with me to book time. And then all of a sudden I start sending you to my assistant to work with them to get on my calendar. You may start to wonder if there is a different formality or if something may have happened. Uh, you know, even feeling a sense of ghosting can can be another issue where the sense of formality or people when people are just busy can come up. And so formality confusing confusion or a lack of consistency in the formality can create a lot of anxiety. If you're very informal and then you move to formal, it can create anxiety in the reverse. If you're very formal and then move to informal. And so My general rule of thumb here is, again, to assume good intent. Remember, people are busy. Things are rapidly changing. At the same time, if you see a consistent pattern for three or four times, no one to pick up the phone and have a candid discussion, especially if there's a high trust and power level. And sometimes you'll realize that there may be something you need to discuss that can't be read because you don't have traditional body language. Trying to think of, like, would most people leaders even think that they've changed formality and like what would what would prompt that and i think a lot of times maybe that's not even on the radar screen of oh i just changed 
context and formality about this person. Like, like you just mentioned, like all of a sudden now we're doing scheduling through an assistant versus you booking through me directly, or, uh, or the context or tone of messaging has really changed. And I'm wondering what we might watch for in ourselves that would be the indicator that, oh gosh, maybe I should say something or do something different versus just changing the tone of the message. And I'm not sure I'm asking a clear question here, but I was just kind of like, I was thinking about like how we could like notice that ourselves if you've, if you've come across any tips for that. No, I think one of the simple things we can all do is ask our team members, our colleagues, you know, what do you notice about my digital body language style? You know, I, I remember two people I interviewed talked about how even they judged how their boss was feeling about them based on the order of email recipients. Uh, so if one of the leader, oh. you know, these are two team members, if one of them was first, they felt like it was the boss's good day for that one versus the other. And even just the hierarchy of who's on the two line, who's on the CC line, you know, are, are things that for some, especially with lower power, can feel as indicators of whatever it may be, trust, respect, power dynamics in the culture. And, and so, uh, you know, for those that may not be thinking about formality, that maybe have just started to think about their level of formality in their digital body language, I have a few rules of thumb for you. The first is, if this is a new relationship and you have more power, you have an opportunity to break down the formality. You know, if people are sending you dear Mrs. Dewan emails for me, um, you know, I can say, just call me Erica. And you can break down some of those barriers. If you have less power, you may want to err on the side of formality first, especially knowing your audience. And then especially once you've had time to talk by phone or meet, you can then break down those barriers. If it's a long-time trusted relationship and the formality changes, like especially suddenly, this is a case where you might want to ask yourself, what, what's going on? Are they just busy or is there a change in behavior? And so again, I think a lot of this has to do with knowing our audience but understanding that certain things can come across in different ways, depending on our trust and power levels. And it's so interesting how much people notice. I'm thinking about what you said about who's listed first on the two line on the email. <laughs> and I've seen that happen where you know different power levels in the organization dictate who gets listed first. And it'd be interesting to like, Think about being intentional about changing those things up and like who's listed first on agendas and those kinds of things. You know, if we can, I, I love what you said a minute ago, like if we're the person with power, which I know a lot in our audience are, if we can take the that opportunity to give away power and to empower others within the organization and to do that, not just through the things we might typically think of, but also in our hygiene around how we order names and how we schedule and what we're saying in messaging, that really can make a big difference as far as what people are noticing. Absolutely. In fact, one story that I share that I think will really allow us all to think was a story about two women, Penelope Gazin and Kate Dwyer, who started an online marketplace a few years ago called WitchSea. And they mainly had to engage with customers and tech developers and art buyers, but their interactions mostly took place over email. And they found as two women, they were often getting correspondence that tended to be condescending or rude, especially from many tech developers. 
So that's when the two of them, two female founders, made the decision to bring in a male co-founder named Keith. And Keith, by the way, didn't exist. He was a fictional character made up entirely <laughs> as an email address. Awesome. And Kate said, she actually quoted in Fast Company, she said it was like night and day. It would take uh, me, as in Kate, days to get a response. But Keith could not only get a response and a status update, but also be asked if he wanted anything else or if there was anything else that Keith needed help with. So these are power dynamics that aren't just across rank levels. Uh, we see it in gender, age group, cultural uh, dynamics in the new world of digital communication. Yeah, and because everything is so much more digital now uh, that the name, what the address is listed as, the emoji, the avatar, the profile picture, that was always important. But now that's oftentimes the first and in some cases the only representation we have initially of that person. And so that that focuses our attention in a new way. And so if, you know, from a leadership standpoint of being really mindful about how we are responding, showing up, giving power, that is that is huge. As much as it would be if we were sitting all in a meeting and doing those things consciously, like I think a lot of us think about doing in person, but if doing that digitally just as important, if not more so now. And even taking that step to understand what are some of our subconscious biases? Uh, you know, we, we may respond immediately to a client, but I'll speak personally. Sometimes for my team members, I'll take three to four days to respond. And there are power dynamics at play that lead to my speed in communication for some versus others. In fact, you know, there were studies that looked at some of these dynamics, uh, you know, if, if across generations, uh, where one millennial leader of a team said, if someone has an Earthlink account still, I'm not going to hire them. They're way out of date. And so we have a digital body language persona and a brand that makes or breaks our first impression because it's not no longer the first seven milliseconds we meet someone. It's how we meet someone before the meeting even happens now. Yeah, and what email domain they're using and all those things. Uh, Erica, just fascinating. Uh, you know, we're only hitting on a few of the principles here in the book. There's so much more that you invite people to do better as a, in thinking about this. So I hope folks will go and uh, grab the book for more. And we have two invitations for you. One is, of course, the book itself. But secondly, is a course that you have available on your site for those who really do want to uh, really want to get better at this. Uh, would you share a bit about that? Absolutely. Well, first, my new book, Digital Body Language, is available everywhere: Audible, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, you name it. And based on a lot of inquiries from team team managers, leaders, and coaches, I developed a digital body language master trainer course, which will help you become an expert and a certified leader in using digital body language skills. And you can find that on my website at dblcourse.com if you want to continue to excel at these skills and create stronger cultures of connection no matter the distance. Perfect. Well, we are going to get that in the episode notes for this episode. Also, we'll go out in this week's weekly leadership guide for everyone. Erica, before I let you go, I often ask people what they've changed their minds on as they've been doing their work and doing their research. And I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that you were writing and researching this book during the pandemic. And of course, the importance of digital body language was always there. It has taken on an entirely new meaning in the last year or two. As you've gone down this journey of researching and seeing how we've all responded, to 
this global event. What have you changed your mind on? One of the things that I've changed my mind on, uh, and I'll say it's something specifically over the rise of video call fatigue and the overwhelming pressure to have it all together on a video screen is, you know, a lot of a lot of digital body language, especially for those that started learning about this topic in the last year. I've been researching for this book for four years. A lot of it was about how do I show up well? How do I look good? How do I have a good virtual background? And um, one of the things I really changed my mind on is it's not about looking good. It's not about having a perfect bookshelf behind you. Digital body language is about how you make others feel in a modern marketplace. There's a lot of privilege. You know, if you look at Twitter and the notion of room raiders or where people are judging you based on your virtual background, there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. You know, if we look at differences in economic classes and who can have a fancy, beautiful background and who can't in a whole level of bias that we have versus people who can and people who don't have that or have children running around versus those that don't. And, and so, you know, one of the things I've changed my mind on is I get a lot, of, I used to get a lot of questions on how do I perfect my virtual video background? And I like to say, make sure it's clean and not distracting. You don't want a bed unmade behind you. But stop thinking that this is about that. It's about how you listen, how you engage, how you create spaces for people to speak up. And you can have a beautiful background, but be terrible at digital body language. So I I guess I'd say I've changed my mind on, you know, that it's not about how we look. It's about how we make others feel. Erica Dewan is the author of Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance. Erica, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much. Several other related episodes that will support you in reducing anxiety in others and communicating what you intend. One of them is episode 464, How to Balance Care and Accountability when leading remotely. My guest on that episode was Jonathan Raymond. We talked about his accountability dial and how helpful it can be both in person and in virtual environments of having regular, consistent communication about care and accountability. Uh, One of the things he invites us to do is to utilize the mention often in order to ensure that we're doing a better job of having regular communication. It's such a useful tool at being able to prevent unnecessary anxiety in so many places in our organization. Episode 464 for that. Also recommended is episode 472, How to Run an Online Meeting. Bonnie was my guest on that episode, and as we've all experienced in the last few years doing more digital meetings, they are different than doing in-person They come with opportunities, of course, but they also come with different challenges of how to get a message across, how to involve people well. In that episode, Bonnie and I uh, share our practices we've used over the years in running online meetings and how to do that effectively, some of the tools and practices that have worked for us, episode 472 for all those details. And then, of course, we can get better by being present with others. That was the topic of the episode with Dave Crenshaw, 511. Earlier this year, Dave and I talked in detail about how we can use good practices to really be present with others. And if we are present and we really are intentional in doing that well, 
boy, did we sure reduce the anxiety level on both parties and communicate more clearly. Again, that's episode 511. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership, you'll want to do that because once you set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, you're going to be able to sort through all of our past conversations over the last 10 years, all of the guest experts, and be able to find the topic that is most important for you right now, whether it's difficult conversations, personal leadership, career, talent development, or many of the other dozens of categories on the site, coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership. When you do, you'll also get access to the entire library, of course, of member casts, all the free audio courses, my entire personal library with every article I've databased and found online in the last several years that will be useful to you. And then, of course, it includes a, uh, a subscription to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday, and that includes the links for every episode, all of the relevant resources for you, and several related resources that I found for you during the week. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Amanda Ripley to the show. It's an important follow-up to this conversation. When conflict does happen, and maybe it's because of unintended situations, or maybe it's something that's been brewing for a long time, how do we get out of conflict? And not only how to get out of it, how do we get out of major conflict when things really go south? Amanda and I are going to be exploring that next week. Join us for that conversation and have a wonderful week.